0: the beyond the studio podcast and you're listening to season two beyond the studio west coast edition i'm amanda adams and i'm nicole
1: muller and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist here we'll share honest conversations with artists makers and business experts and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio Support for this season comes from Southern Exposure's Alternative Exposure Grant Program in partnership with Facebook's Artist-in-Residence Program and the Andy Warhol Foundation. If you find value in listening to Beyond the Studio, we'd love to ask you to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's the easiest way to show us some love and to help others find the podcast. Thank you so much in advance for letting us know what you think and for supporting the show. You might hear some adult language used occasionally on the show, so please be mindful of those around you and pop in some headphones if needed.
0: When I'm not working on the podcast, I'm working on my fiber art and illustration brand, Close Call Studio. So if you want to follow along with my own journey, you can check me out on Instagram at Close Call Studio, or check out my website at CloseCallStudio.com.
1: It's Nicole here, your other Beyond the Studio co-host. I'm a painter, muralist, and installation artist. If you want to see more of my work and studio process, you can find me on Instagram at Nicole Marie Muller or my website, which is NicoleMarieMuller. That's m-u-e-l-l-e-r dot com. On today's episode of Beyond the Studio, we are talking with San Francisco-based artist and painter, Eric Pada, who has exhibited his work internationally in alternative spaces, commercial galleries, and museums, as well as extensively throughout the Bay Area, participated in artist residencies, and works as an educator. And so we're really excited to talk with him today. And Eric, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We kind of always like to go back and start out just by asking our guests um, in their own words as well to share a little bit about themselves, their creative journey thus far, and just where they grew up, a little bit about their early journey. Um, Would you mind just sharing a little bit more about yourself and where you're from?
2: Sure. I was born in El Paso, Texas. And I think one of the the key pieces of info is that uh, my dad was a painter. So this journey really goes back to about the time I was able to hold a pencil. And I bring that up because I I literally have a sketchbook record that goes back until around then. So it's kind of like,
1: oh, my God,
2: it's really interesting. It's really interesting to go back and look at like sketchbooks from when I was in second grade.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. So you've kept all of them, it sounds like? You still have those?
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There are certain things I would not let my mother throw away.
1: Yeah, that's definitely got to be one of them. I actually just, uh, my parents moved to a new place in Florida recently, and the last time I visited over Thanksgiving, had the job of going through all of the things they'd been carrying around for me for years and looking through childhood mementos and looking back at all my early sketchbooks from probably similar time, like elementary middle school. as uh, a lot of rude cartoon drawings, but it, it felt kind of like a diary, honestly. It, it was a pretty personal um you know something that i just carried with me all the time and i felt like it was an interesting way to like catalog that chapter of life
2: yeah it's interesting to, to look back and to, to see who you were through your drawings
1: so it sounds like you were set out on this creative track from the beginning did you always want to pursue a career in the arts
2: no actually uh, because my dad was an artist i was more interested in commercial Actually, I was more interested in making money. so <laughs> I knew I wanted to do something creative, but you know, I, I saw the way we grew up. We were just like average middle class, but I wanted to use my creativity in a more uh, financially lucrative way. Mm -hmm. that part of my life, I became a professional photographer, um, because I studied photo at UTEP while I was in high school. UTEP is the University of Texas at El Paso, Uh, took a photo class. And I really just dived into photography. And that that became that was like, it was pretty ripe for me in terms of creativity and like initial steps forward and finding my own sort of voice. Uh, Because it was the first time that it was something that my dad was interested in. It was something that, you know, had been in my life, but it was for the most part mine. It was my expression. He was a painter, you know. It was- Part of establishing my identity as a creative, and so I went on to graduate, head photographer of the newspaper, yearbook, and literary magazine at my high school, and I was on track to be a. The idea was I was going to be a medical illustrator because I wanted to be creative, but I wanted to like tap into that medicine money, and
1: (laughs) (laughs) you're like, this is where the money's at. That's where I'm going.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, here we are, so <laughs> yeah. that clearly didn't work for the better. Uh, I started college with pre-med, journalism, double major track.
1: Okay, wow.
2: <clears throat> at the University of Texas at Austin, the, uh, the pre-med oh, bio. Oh, that's where
0: my sister is right now. Uh, Not yeah. in that department,
2: but. Well, that's that's where, I, that's where I got my undergrad at UT Austin. The bio one in the pre-med track, they were all weed-out classes, so they were like enormous stadiums full of people all trying to get their bio one credit and they were all like at eight in the morning so it was like designed to like weed out the people who are not interested clearly i was not <laughs> interested so i sort of you know like floundered around for a couple of years and almost lost my, you know, my funding for school. And so through that process, I ended up taking some time out and studying drawing or took some drawing classes, basically, at the Austin Community College, just to sort of get my GPA up and get back into school. When I got back into school, my advisor was really interested in the fact that I had taken drawing. And I come from a background of of artists. And he was like, well, maybe you should take this drawing for non-majors class as a way to, you know, boost your GPA and, and, and sort of figure out what you want to do. And that class changed my life. It was like the teacher was completely supportive. I sort of got the foundation about how an artist thinks and how an artist should move forward. And basically I got a ton of support and I ended up changing my major after having conversations with the woman who taught this class. And she was just super encouraging of my talent and my ideas and She saw something in me. Dr. Brooks.
0: Yeah, shout out to Dr.
1: Brooks. (laughs) Having those really creative mentors is so important. That's something I think we've heard come up many times is that just even having one person who is that supporter can really set you on a totally different life trajectory. And I'm, I'm curious too, so as you're developing or rediscovering your artistic voice in this new way, did you have any sense of what that career path might look like for you? Like, was that ever a part of the conversation while you were in college? Or what did your life look like when you graduated? And then, you know, we're faced with the next steps of what to do next.
2: Yeah, so um, this whole conversation about professional practices yeah. wasn't a thing until I was in about midway through grad school. Like, I look back at my time in, at UT, and, and it was really, really great. Like, the, the courses, it, it was like, I wouldn't know this until I finished and started looking for graduate programs. But the curriculum was very rigorous. It was a lot more aligned with what you find at a commercial or like a private art school. Studios were like four hours. We had uh, art history between studios. And so like, we had like a nine hour day just in terms of coursework. You know, to Monday mm-hmm. through Thursday, and then Friday we had classes all day. So, and I didn't realize that at the time, but it was such a important foundation in terms of learning skills and like all these studio things. And part of it was that I didn't even know to ask. Part of it was that I kind of gleaned a little bit from my, like my dad was a teacher. He did art when he wasn't teaching. So like that model was in place already. And so I just focused more on my, on my BFA and getting my degree and creating a thesis show that, that I was proud of and that had integrity and that was more about the work. It was all about the work first. That was the temperature of the water at UT Fo- when I was there, focused on the work. And it, there wasn't a com- much of a conversation about what you do after.
1: Mm-hmm. And did you go right from undergrad into graduate school?
2: No, I, I didn't get accepted right away, which was the beginning of the, the dark times. <laughs> um,
0: We've all had them.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it, it's like...
0: I refer to my freshman year as just the dark ages. <laughs> but it's when I met Nicole, so it's fine.
1: <laughs> there was some silver lining. I'm silver funny.
2: lining. Yeah, no, I uh, so I had a lot of friends who focused about halfway on their thesis and halfway on grad school applications and jobs and... I was that fool who focused all the way on my thesis and didn't worry about my jobs. Afterwards, I applied and I didn't get in. And so I was sort of like... You know, I was stuck. I didn't want to stay in Austin just for the sake of staying in Austin. So I went back. I moved back home. And this is why I call it the Dark Ages because I moved back in with my folks, who are awesome. Like, you know, that, that wasn't it in and of itself, but really didn't have any marketable skills outside of I had been working at a daycare. So I was had a, a few like classroom management skills, and I had some some experience working with kids. And so I moved back home, got a job substitute teaching at my high school alma mater. And um, I just set up a studio in, the, in their garage and continued painting. And so was, that's why I call it the dark times because it was like didn't I failed to get into grad school, didn't really have any prospects for a career or job, lived in my parents' house painting in their garage, and I was a substitute teacher at my high school. So it was, it was rough. But I ended up getting into grad school a couple years later after mm-hmm. moving to San Francisco, actually.
0: Man, I feel like that's such a common journey though like so often when we're in school you're just very focused on exactly what you're doing and it's hard to think of the next several steps of what you're gonna do when you're out and I know when I graduated I was like okay now what (laughs) I worked really hard and I don't even know how to apply this and for me that solution was just trying to figure out how to be my own boss because I didn't like working for anybody else and I didn't want to and that Took a lot of time, but grad school was not even something that I thought about too much. How was your grad school experience?
2: My grad school experience was fantastic. So one of the things that I often tell uh, my students or people who ask me about, you know, applying to grad school, what to do after undergrad, I always tell them not to apply straight away. I always tell them that you need some time to figure out what your work's about. If you need to live at your folks house and teach at your high school alma mater and suffer that pain that's got to go in there right makes the work Mm. better so you know or or whatever life experience that you're going to have when you're out of school and trying to figure things out i think it's totally valid i ended up moving to san francisco so i stayed in in texas a, a year after i graduated and by that time another friend that went to college around the same area not at ut but in texas he had finished and he was moving to san francisco because his sister lived here so i offered to accompany him on the drive out and i ended up staying in san francisco for two year or for a year and a half ish uh, before i was accepted a position as a graduate student on fellowship at the University of Wisconsin Madison. So it was good to wait because not only did I, I got into a good program, but I, I got funded. So which is another
0: That makes a huge difference.
2: <laughs> yeah. It, like I got so much advice from my friends who got into graduate school right out of undergrad to not go into debt for your MFA. Like that was the one thing that almost everybody told me like do not go into debt for your mfa at the time i didn't really realize i mean i did realize that that this dynamic was in place but i didn't realize how it functioned for you beyond grad school like would you give up going to a program like the university of wisconsin versus some place like cca or pratt like you give up a network but at the same time i had three years and i was funded I wouldn't trade that for the world.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, unfortunately, for a lot of young people, that's not something that they're really thinking about or envisioning what maybe life is going to look like that far down the road and what it means to have to deal with student debt. And I think that's a reality that a lot of us are facing at this time in our lives. Um, And I'll say that even, I mean, I definitely didn't have a sense of that when I was younger, but it was also, you know, somewhat on my radar. And I would say affected my decision not to go to grad school is because I chose to go to, you know, and I was privileged enough to be able to go to a private art college for my undergraduate degree Um, and so that was sort of with the idea in mind that I'm not going to continue on to graduate school and instead I'm gonna you know have this private art school experience at the undergrad level and hopefully you know that's enough to kind of kickstart my career forward but this is all just like teenage rationale you know and um, (laughs) it's it's hard to to really understand what that means for you later in your life.
2: Well, and I also feel like what muddies the water is I I feel like there's a real palpable rush or like there's a real push for you to like get out and be hot as a young artist. Mm -hmm. I feel like that, you know, because I I teach at CCA a little bit and I, I teach in different various programs and like I still feel it. Part of it is, you know, growing and learning that it's not just about being young and recognized right away, but about building a a career that can help you develop a life versus yeah. just like being famous or being well known or you know getting in a gallery right away and like all these things that have to be in place there's such a, a rush to you feel it i think and yeah part of growing as i've gone along this journey is part of it is that you know i've always known That it's going to take time that things are going to take time just being patient and okay with that and the way I deal with that is I just pour my whole interest and I just pour myself into my work basically
1: yeah I think oh man there's a lot that I would want to respond to there but I think that there's there definitely is this pressure, and we we talk a lot about the idea of defining success on your own terms and gaining clarity for you know you as a person, an artist, as to what you want your life to look like. But I feel like what you were describing earlier is this mentality when you're in undergrad or a graduate school, wherever, that you just focus on the work, it's all about that, that's going to carry you forward, is definitely really prevalent, and then coupled with this kind of pressure to just be known and to you know, have your work out there in some way leads to the, maybe that feeling that you have to like have a certain level of notoriety or you have to have a level of fame. And that's sort of the goal. But I think also like realizing that you know sustainability and like notoriety like all of these things don't necessarily go together there's a really interesting article that came out this month um in freeze that was I can't remember the name of it but I'll find it and link to it later but it is just talking shedding light on all these artists that are you know in these huge art fairs and participating in biennials and how they're still struggling financially you know and that there's not just because you've reached a certain level of success by the standards of being you know quote unquote famous as an artist doesn't necessarily mean that you've also reached financial stability or you know any of these other things so i feel like it's really important to just get clear about what your goal really is and if it is building a life as an artist making decisions in service of that and not be distracted or caught up in the the sort of more shallow aspect of just being popular or trying to you know get your work out there
2: it's interesting because i'm not I mean, I'm pretty visible right here in the Bay. Most people, a lot of people know my work. Like, I'm realistic about, I feel like I'm realistic about that. However, it's interesting hearing other people, like, make comments or, like, post on Instagram. It's like, wow, I think you think I'm a lot more famous and well-off than, than what's really going on. Like, Yeah. Like, so I had this call two weeks ago. Like, I lost my health care. Because I made more money than I did the previous year, so basically I've been bumped from me- okay. I've been bumped from MediCal to I'm now I'm on Covered California.
0: This is America,
2: which is ah. like it's really it's really it's really interesting because like I, while I did make a little more money, I'm still kind of on the low end of the healthcare spectrum. Mm-hmm. In my mind, I'm like I'm struggling, but then I go online and people are like making these comments and they're like wait like I think you think I'm doing a lot better than I am.
0: Yeah. Oh. I have this conversation with my husband all the time. He's a musician and they have a lot of people that follow the the band that he's in. And all the time people are commenting like come here, like come on tour here, go do this. We want to see more of this. And he's always like, I think people think that we make money. I I don't think they realize that like I can't afford to pay for my own health insurance and that I like I'm really struggling. But if you, if you look famous on Instagram, then surely you must be, right? Surely your bills must all be covered and, and everything is, you know, hunky-dory.
2: Well, uh, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> you have a studio feed on Instagram? You must be famous.
0: Obviously. <laughs>
2: Which is, it's just, it's just interesting how people respond to the marketing that I put out there.
1: Mm-hmm. So how, with this long-term perspective in mind, and once you got out of grad school, what were the next steps for you then? Like, how did you find your way back to the Bay Area? What were some of the maybe first jobs that you were getting and ways that you were starting to develop your um, your career now that you built up um, a, a body of work?
2: So I again, I'm the guy who doesn't learn, <laughs> and I have a little bit of I have a little bit of a, a stubborn streak. So
0: a stubborn artist, what?
2: <laughs> crazy, right? That last semester of of graduate school, when everybody was focusing on teacher packets and applying for jobs all over the greater Midwest at every tiny liberal arts school that had an arts opening, I was like you know what, I'm focusing on my thesis show because that's what I'm here for. And so I didn't apply Mm -hmm. to anything. I didn't have any job prospects and I just like threw caution to the wind and I threw myself into my thesis show. Fortunately, I had met somebody who was an incoming grad student who had a friend who had a loft in Williamsburg and he had a space that was opening up right around the time that my school was ending. So I was like super excited. Like I had no debt have an MFA studio practices rolling I'm feeling great had this opportunity to move to New York so that's what I did I moved to a crazy little loft in Bushwick back before it was East Williamsburg and um, what I did for work was so I mentioned earlier that in undergrad I worked at a daycare I guess it was the last two years of my undergrad degree that I um, I made a conscious decision to move from a service sector slash my dishwashing job to something a little more professional. So I took a position at a daycare that was a really commercial and really private. And normally, at that point in my life especially, those two ideas would have been like, very antagonistic to my person and my personality, but I decided to take it because I didn't. I was sick of washing dishes. I was sick of making change at a register. Uh, I was done with dealing with the general public. So in <laughs> retrospect, it ended up being it ended up working really well for me because they gave us a lot of training and professional development about around like classroom management and curriculum development like all these things that would help me out later on so that that turned into my substitute teaching job which while I was in grad school I found a little studio that I taught art to kids at so basically when I got to New York I had all this experience teaching kids so it was one of my one of the roommates in the loft worked for this organization called Dreamyard which is uh, teaching artists. Now they have their own schools, but at the time I started, they um, hired teaching artists to work in elementary schools on these residencies in which we developed this project Arc with one or more classes. Um, mm-hmm. So that's what I did. I had a studio, lived in my studio. I showed at Momenta. I had a show at Momenta. I was in a group show at Momenta Art. I was in the first of the first ever of Bushwick Open Studios, Like it was like super exciting because I just finished grad school, I was in New York, things were like moving and shaking, and I was there for, let's see, a couple of years, and then the same friend who brought me to San Francisco the first time, he had grown tired of his day job and wanted to do something more creative. He had studied architecture, but ended up working as an accountant. So he was really frustrated.
0: That's a change.
2: (laughs) Yeah, totally. He figures into the story again later. He hatched this plan to do this project, uh, this art house, where we would have a gallery for visual art exhibitions. Uh, We'd have a venue space for performance of music, spoken word, poetry. We would do film screening. Like literally on the traditional art house model, we would have everything. Yeah. And so we developed. He brought me on board to develop the curatorial program for the visual arts part, and we had another guy who developed a, an amazing music program, and we had this woman who curated this fantastic literary series. So that's what brought me. That's what brought me back to the Bay in two thousand and seven. Is when that was. We started five okay. Five Points Art House in North Beach. So that time in my life, that that two years, I was the head curator of our space, taught me more about professional practices than I had learned up until that point. It was amazing because I could have conversations with other people who were doing spaces and doing other things in a way that was, I, I wasn't asking for them. So, you know, so much of, when you get out and you're like seeking opportunities, like so much of it is you're asking other people like you want to show like you're asking for things. And, you know, as a curator mm-hmm. and, and having experienced that, people are relentless in asking you for things and asking for you to help them. And it really sort of opened my mind that it's a conversation. If I have something to offer, I can offer that and then we can have a back and forth, an exchange versus me just expecting you to look at my work because I made it.
1: Yeah, that's interesting to hear because I almost feel like most, I mean, most of the artists I know have the opposite problem where there's such this fear around being too demanding. And so there's less, they don't want to put themselves out there because it's so intimidating. But it sounds like on the other end of it, there is also a lot of um, really aggressive yeah,
2: Yeah, there's, there's a lot of aggressive people out there. For sure. For as many of the, you know, introspective, shy, timid artists, I would say there's as many, if not more, who are like entitled, aggressive, and just like competitive, Mm. you know, and on some level, like, I get the impulse to be competitive. But it wasn't until I was working as a curator, trying to put shows together, that I realized that it's a back and forth, that it's not just for as much as it looks like it's just a gallery puts your work on the walls. It's not that at all. It's a back and forth. It's a conversation about the work. It's a conversation about the ideas. It's a conversation, you know, there's quit, there's, yeah. there's a give and take. And so I learned that. I also learned that when I was operating as a curator, that I, we could have a conversation about pr- professional practices, like curating and like all these things that were related. And then ultimately we would get around to the fact that, well, you know, I'm an artist too. And like, Maybe we should do studio visits and like extend this conversation from a a professional conversation about, you know, being a gallery or putting on a show to this other, these other hats that we wear, like we could have, Mm -hmm. because I'm thinking about a couple of the spots that I first uh, exhibited at when I moved out here, it was an artist run space called Blank Space. When Carrie and I first met, like we just oftentimes compared notes about the process of curating and putting on shows. And and then ultimately, later on, we came around to like doing a studio visit and she liked the work. And then, you know, then I was in the show. And it was just, it was just such a nice realization that there is more than one way to go about getting my work shown, while also really sort of taking a step back and looking at this whole process through a different lens, you know, because mm-hmm. because I didn't get a, a lot of conversation about professional practices as an undergrad, I did have a lot of that. Well, how do I get my work in the gallery? Like, how do I support myself? Like, how do I do me, 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 basically, you know, when it's not just about me, it's about you and like, not just what you can do for me, but what I can do for you and how I can bring you value and how we can work together yeah. to build something that's bigger than just me or just you.
0: Yeah, I think it's so easy in those moments sometimes, especially when you're young. I mean, I'm still in my 20s, so I've only ever been young. But when you're young and you you just you have this sort of sense of entitlement sometimes because you feel like you deserve all the opportunities that can come your way and that you could possibly get and you forget that it's a symbiotic relationship and that the gallery needs you, the curator needs you as much as you need them, but you you have to show up and do the work and and still be a responsible human being that is helping contribute to the overall uh, production.
2: Yeah. I mean, just because you put in 100 hours in the studio and put up with Professor Grumpy Pants doesn't mean you (laughs) like are entitled to a show
1: yeah yeah and whether it's driven by narcissism or even fear around I don't know how this is gonna happen like how am I gonna do all these things right like the common thread there is that it sort of becomes just about you and it's so easy to fall back into that like self-centered mentality around you know what am I gonna do next how am I gonna make this work and so I really like that you put yourself in another role that allowed you to create opportunities for others but that you flip that script around too and ask yourself how can I add value beyond just making the work and you know that is important I think that artists have an important role to play there just in making their work but really looking at other ways that you could involve yourself in that community and opening up a dialogue that way that ended up coming back around to curry more opportunities for you in your own artistic career so I love that trying to think about other ways that you can be generous to your own community even if it just is to get yourself out of your own head and thinking about you know what's the next step for me
2: well and it's, I'm glad you brought that up because also what I what I wanted to say about that is that it opened my mind to the idea that the work should have a value like my personal studio work should have some value to somebody else outside of my impetus to make it, right? So going back to that idea of being a curator and like thinking about programming a a show or an afternoon or whatever it is, like you're putting it on for the community. And so the work you're choosing has to have value to the community. And like as the curator, you're the conduit of that. And that really sort of impressed upon my mind that that, that my work should also have value for somebody other than just beyond my desire to make it.
1: Mm -hmm. So it sounds like it changed the way that you were thinking about and maybe having conversations about your work as well. Absolutely. How did you see
0: from your experience with curating? What specifics are you taking into your own practice from that experience?
2: Well, to be fair, I haven't curated a show in quite a while so the foundation of that that moment happened a while ago the thread at this point is that i i want anybody to have an aesthetic experience um it's funny jerry Saltz has this phrase that he says and i i use it tongue-in-cheek all the time like to poke fun at this idea but there's a grain of truth to it in that art is for anybody It's just not for everybody. And so when I make my work, and one of the things that I think about is like my grandfather, going back to the time when I finally got accepted to graduate school. So my grandfather was blue collar through and through. He raised a really large Catholic family, supported them through the Depression, moved at will. He was a migrant worker. They moved at will to support the family. So his relationship to labor is work as... Uh, product. So when I got accepted to grad school, I was like all excited talking to my grand folks about, you know, hey, I'm going to go back to, you know, get my MFA. And he's like, well, d- don't you already know how to paint? Like, didn't you already <laughs> learn that? And it was just like, oh, yeah, wait a minute, I'll be able to teach in college. And he was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> you know, how do you have a conversation about work is process with a 80 year old Uh, immigrant who is you know has raised a family of like you know nine daughters you don't so what you do (coughs) is you have to you know frame the conversation in terms that he understands and so that's one of the things that I bring to my studio all the time is that you know and it's part of this thread about how do I you know try to impart value in my work for other people in the community is that I try to create a situation in which regardless of your degree education, uh, social status, tax bracket, that you can have an aesthetic experience. So that's really, and it's super political. We were talking, we were joking earlier about politics. Like like for me, it's like really important that somebody who doesn't know a thing about art can have an experience in front of my painting up to the person that I teach with at CCA who has too many, do- who has like all these degrees and like looks at art in a completely different way. Like they need to have yeah. an experience too but so does my grandfather.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's so easy to get kind of wrapped up in the vision of where you want your art to physically end up that you kind of forget about. Or sometimes it's easy to forget about the audience and knowing that like people don't necessarily see my work and think what I'm thinking about it or or get what I want them to out of it. But I, I do want anyone that experiences my work to experience some sense of joy or appreciation or just recognizing
1: like, huh, someone made that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. In addition to working as a curator and in a kind of gallery setting, helping to shift and change the way that you thought about your own work and the place that it held in your own community were you also starting related to the conversations around professional practices to just gain an understanding of the logistics of working a gallery like were there other things that you were kind of picking up through that experience of working collaboratively with this space that has served you in other ways in your career
2: yeah that was the time that i learned excel
1: Uh (laughs) uh-huh Oh, Excel.
2: And for those people who don't work in Excel on a daily basis, it's really challenging. It's kind of a joke. I mean, I did really learn Excel, but so part of that was that I learned how to budget a little bit, which is not a natural thing for me. And in my personal life, I'm not as good at budgeting in my personal life as I am for budgeting the studio.
0: Yeah.
2: And then the other big thing right around that time was that I was, I was nominated by Southern Exposure.
1: Hey. Shout out to Southern Exposure <laughs> and all the great work they do in the Bay Area. <laughs> they, Who's also supporting this podcast.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, uh, they, really, they really, really helped me get established when I first moved here for a couple of reasons. One being like the first show that I was in, was in a, a group. Sh- I was in a group show in Sox, two thousand seven ish, two thousand eight. Uh, and then the other thing was this this award that they nominated and subsequently gave me through Creative Capital out of New York. They did this three day workshop where it was all about professional practices. It was budgets. It was goals. It was business plans. It was everything that nobody had ever even mentioned in undergrad. And I was just like, or grad. Yep. And it was just like, wow, there's this whole other thing that you have to do. There's all this other work to support the work. And it was just like such an eye opener. So not only did I not only did I learn practical, you know, knowledge of the platform Excel and our rudimentary budgeting for our project, I was also introduced to all these other ideas about supporting the work, like understanding that it's not good to give away your work and like to value work as labor that supports the studio, you know? So like, feeling okay with pricing work and like learning how to price work and have that conversation with people about pricing work like all these sort of professional practices like i said that i had not been introduced to it was just it was like boot camp and it was really really fantastic and i can't thank SoX enough
1: yeah creative capital is such a great resource too i've done some online webinars and workshops that they've put on and they're based in new york right is where you went for it so if anyone is local to new york um, and aren't already Taking advantage of their services, they actually have a deadline coming up for their big grant program pretty soon, I think. So if there are any artists that aren't already familiar with Creative Capital, I feel like they're a pretty big cultural producer. Definitely um, check check out their resources.
2: Yeah, they they are based in New York. The program that we that I was nominated for happened out here in the Bay. They came out here and did a pro um, a oh, workshop. That's right. But yeah, they are a huge resource.
1: And so in what ways um, what were all these conversations and these workshops starting to change the way that you maybe approached your own painting practice or started to tighten up some of these, the, the business end of your work?
2: Part of it, and, and this is something that I struggle with today because I get a million of them, but part of it was like simple things like responding to email in a timely fashion, you know? Yeah. Before that, it was like, oh, well, I'm in the studio. I'll just email you whenever. You know, like you, again, chipping away or not chipping away, but making visible how to support the studio instead of like hiding behind a mythology that doesn't really, that is not productive.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: So like, you know, responding to emails and then things like budgeting, like figuring out you know how many hours go towards one project, and like you know, recouping money and, and, and like all those sorts of things. For me, by this time, my studio ethic was a hundred percent in place. I'm kind of a workaholic, and I love working in the studio. So right out of right out of undergrad, the, when I would, didn't get, I think the biggest incentive for me to develop that early on was not getting into grad school. It was a slap in the face, and because I'm kind of competitive, it really lit the fire under me to get into grad school and to like work on my studio. So through graduate school, the work ethic wasn't in question. Like I can work all the time. Like that's not the issue. For me, it was learning about, you know, communication and being organized and writing to communicate your ideas in a way that expands upon the ideas and makes other people want to support and help your ideas so those were the things that creative capital really you know got me up to speed with and really helped me out in a lot of ways
0: Mm -hmm. yeah I know Nicole and I have talked about this before but I remember after I graduated my first realization was like okay I have no idea how to be a artist professionally like how am I supposed to pay my bills doing this how am I supposed to get people in front of my work and or get my work in front of people like I don't I don't know and I immediately enrolled in a a business class because I was like I don't know how to manage my time my money I don't know how to handle communications I don't know how to do customer service aside from you know retail and food service which is incredibly helpful in an art practice too like just learning how to handle difficult situations and and provide good customer service and talk to people but there's so much beyond the actual making of the art that makes the art happen. And it's easy to forget about that because you want to spend all of your time in the studio. But the hours that I spend handling my email and like going through running errands and stuff is just as important because they're necessary to keep the lights on and and to keep the the business going and self-sustaining.
2: Totally. And it's actually I mean so while it is becoming more clear there's there's certain aspects of the market and the business that are still kind of nebulous Like I I have a friend, I I have a close friend who's got a studio in LA and, you know, he's pretty well established for lack of a better metric. He's maybe a little bit slightly more established than I am, but we're real close in age and profession and we're constantly having these conversations like about how, you know, when we were younger and undergrad, like there was like, we didn't know what happened behind the curtain. And then the older we get and the closer we get to it, there's still a fair amount of like How the hell does this even work?
1: Yeah. Yeah, you're talking about the art world at large, just the sort of weird, mysterious, um, opaque beast of the industry.
2: And I had this thought earlier, because I was thinking about this conversation, and I was thinking, man, do you remember when you, like, I don't know if you had this experience, but as a child, like, on my block we would play games, variations of like football and you know, various games, war whatever, and the, oftentimes, we would change the rules as we were playing, the like in the middle of play like we would cha- mm. change the rules and like you're just expected to adapt, like I kind of feel like the art world is like that, like we're all playing this game and then all of a sudden some <laughs> loud mouth is like I'm changing the rules, and like we all have to be like, okay, let's adapt yeah yes
1: that's a that's a really perfect analogy (laughs) yeah
0: now I'm remembering all the games of manhunt in my neighborhood
1: (laughs) yeah I think that it's I feel like I I don't understand how the art world works and I wouldn't pretend to because it is just such a I mean and I'm thinking more of like the upper echelon of high-end art world you know I've watched documentaries on Netflix but I feel like that's so distant from my own experience as a working artist and so I think that you know as we're talking to more and more artists who are kind of involved in all these different facets of various communities and live in different places you know I've come to like there are just all these different art worlds and i'm almost like not even concerned with engaging or trying to chase that as some kind of goal and realize that you know it's just about creating opportunities for those and finding opportunities around you and almost like carving out your own space because like you said it's ever-changing game that if you're always if that's always your metric for success, then you're always gonna feel like you're on this hamster wheel because it's the rules are always changing and there's no way to really keep up and to, to be winning the game all the time. So I'm curious too, uh, so we talked a little bit about the early days in San Francisco. Like what was, what kinds of things were starting to happen next, whether they're artistic opportunities showing in galleries or maybe doing residencies and also professionally, like other roles or jobs you were starting to take on, um, like how has your career started to build since the point that you were doing more curatorial work on first moving to the Bay?
2: well I, I did a fair amount of writing I did some reviews for some small publications that are probably not even online anymore. I developed that that part which I haven't really explored I've, I've been kind of busy in the studio since then which is which has been really fortunate.
0: Oh she's frozen
2: <laughs> some weird it's like some weird Black mirror episode.
0: Sorry Nicole when we lost you we thought we were experiencing some black mirror shit
2: sorry.
1: <laughs>
0: You go away and we see ourselves and we just see how terrible it all is. And, <laughs> you know, we're all just realizing we're not experts in the art world.
2: <laughs> um, but maybe we are.
0: Yes. I mean, we are absolutely experts in the art world. 100%.
2: <laughs> I feel like I've been paid to to lecture to undergrad students about professional practices. And so technically I am. Yeah. Right?
0: And I'm sure you've put forth the the 10,000 hours at the Malcolm Gladwell number oh, yeah. of, of being the expert. I'm sure that's happened by now. I,
2: I do that all the time in my classes. I, I make that joke all the time. <laughs> because it's, it's funny. The whole controversy around that number is funny yeah. to me. But it also speaks to like toiling away at learning how to paint. Like, it's a slow process that takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Like, On top of everything we have to do, you still have to go to the studio for hours at a time and practice your craft.
0: Yeah, and that even pulls back to like what you were talking about before regarding being patient with your practice. It does take a lot of time and you kind of forget that time is just as much an element of your work as any other part of it. And it's the most annoying thing because you can't do anything about it.
2: Yes, especially when like you have to sleep And, like, Mm -hmm. go to a day job. So annoying. So annoying. (laughs) Where were we? Getting back to...
1: Yeah, well, I'd love to get a little more into some of the specific opportunities that you've had throughout your career here in the Bay. You've shown with a lot of different types of spaces. I know you've done some artist residencies like the Liquitex. Have there been any kind of pivotal experiences that you've had that have sort of altered the direction of your career in some way or just been really important uh, learning experiences like the Creative Capital, for example?
2: Yeah, the creative capital. Right around the time of creative capital, I had work. I was included in a group show at the, at the Headlands, and that was amazing to see my work hanging in those in those big, beautiful, light filled spaces. And then from there, it, like it just sort of bumped my visibility, and had, I had a show with uh, Kimberly Johansson in Oakland, and that was that was fantastic. That it was blogged about all over the world like that was the that was the first when somebody in Germany was writing about my work and it came up Um, on you know online when I was doing my resume or whatever like
1: and these just started to happen through those natural connections of one thing kind of leading to the next thing
2: yes but also I'm a hustler I am diligent with my email and I Mm -hmm. do want to grow this studio practice and I don't just want to like toil away in obscurity which is fine, but that's just not who I am. Like, so it was recognizing that there was something I could capitalize on to get more eyeballs on my work. That's really what it's all about is I just want as many people as possible to see my work because I do feel it has value across that yeah. whole swath of people that I shoot for.
1: So you mean when um, when like a higher visibility opportunity, like a show came about for you, you're using that as a way to share that with your networks, like send emails out to people to kind of build momentum? Yes. And do you have any other, are you also really proactively applying for things like residencies or grants? Like do you have any systems for garnering other opportunities?
2: <laughs> I like... I am, so I'm really, I told you I was stubborn. does that
1: Excel knowledge come into play in any way?
2: (laughs) No, that just keeps me organized. Um, But I told you I was stubborn, and I do apply for a fair amount of things. Uh, I try generally not to apply for pay-to-play shows, especially with with large groups of artists. Mm. I mostly, at this point, I mostly apply for awards, grants. And residencies but uh, but I laugh because I only apply for the residencies that are super competitive in which you don't have to pay you know there's a stipend it's at least for like basically me and like Olafur Eliasson are applying for the same things and I'm always just like <laughs> I'm never gonna get this but here's my work anyway so I do apply for certain things uh, at this point like the work is building in such a way that I don't really want to, like, interrupt the workflow just to, like, send out a couple of paintings to some show that, you know, it has some title-like brushstrokes, which is just doesn't mean much to me as an artist because like that's kind of generic you know like
1: sure you're more strategic Mm -hmm. and selective with things that you do apply for
2: right because I'm it's like it's about the meaning of the work and how the work is seen in conversation which before I even knew the term professional practices like that's what I was concerned with like my intellectual product how it's talked about how it's created and how it's exhibited like that is that is paramount I don't really apply for a bunch, plus it's, you know, I know, like, I know it's important for a lot of people, and like, it it helps people establish careers, and and I, early on, I applied to a bunch of open calls that you you pay, you know, your $40 application fee for your slides, and maybe you get in, maybe you don't, but sometimes they, and this is kind of why I stopped doing that, sometimes they feel like a scam, like a money-making opportunity, or like, Yeah, like the boat is only afloat because of all these applications.
1: Uh, Sure, that's the business model, right? It's like
2: that's that seems kind of shaky
1: yeah so are there other ways that you are getting your work in front of the people that you do want to see it beyond the kind of natural organic building um, of one show leading to the next if it's it doesn't involve applying to strategic open calls where you know maybe a particular curator might at least have a look at your work or something like that
2: no i do it organically like i'm I'm interested in going to a show that is curated and having a conversation with a curator or, the, or an artist and like bringing that conversation into my studio and then hopefully things grow from, from there. And I don't want to belittle the process of applying for shows. Like that's not my intention. My intention is sure. mostly to communicate that at this point I don't want to be in a million group shows with a million different artists. And this goes back to, you know, our conversation about what success looks like and what I envision for my profession and how I'm I'm trying to build something that is more sustainable out of the studio and not just having to have a teaching job so that I can apply to a million shows and have a million lines on my resume.
0: Yeah, I think there's something beneficial about like I'll relate it to my craft world side cuz I do a lot of craft shows but I'm getting to the point now where I'm trying to wean down the number of shows that I'm participating in and just be very selective about those shows I'm in and and ones that I know are right for my work, right for my audience, are worth my time. But in the past I did just like blanket apply to every opportunity that was that I could get myself to and I learned a lot of stuff the hard way from doing that, and I think it was a good learning experience, but it wasn't always beneficial to the, the success of the work. And I, I think that you can go through phases where you you can do stuff like that, but it's not really sustainable and you don't need it everywhere all the time.
2: <laughs> it's kind of a, it's kind of a double-edged sword because people like don't want to show you if you've never shown before, but like how do you get to show? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is, again, why I want to reiterate that I wasn't, not trying to belittle that, but that business model of having shows to collect the application fee to be open is like mm-hmm. a, a rung. That's just scammy. It's like a rung in hell just slightly above directly profiting off artists.
0: Yeah.
2: Right? It's just misguided, like. I don't know. And, and part of it is it's points to larger cultural issues in, in how art is funded and consumed and you know, it points to larger issues that are that are that are problematic. So for me at this point I live low to the ground. I have a pretty Spartan existence because well, I live in San Francisco and <laughs> I make paintings and Yep. I have to if I want to keep doing this. So that's kind of why at this point it's a little more organic for me. And what I when I send out you know packets and when I apply for things, it's it's for money mm-hmm. uh, and residencies because I really you know I love that I love that space in which you just have four weeks to do nothing but focus on your work.
1: Yeah. So what is the current dynamic like for you now? It sounds like you're spending a lot of time in the studio. You're also teaching. Can you tell us a little bit about how you're spreading your time out?
2: Oh, yeah. So right now, like, (laughs) so I teach, I teach a lot in a variety of different programs. I teach a little bit at CCA. I work with grad students in the painting department. Uh, I've been teaching drawing in the first year program. Um, I also teach in the CCA extension program. I teach at the City College of San Francisco extension program. I do one residency a year with San Francisco Arts Education Project, uh, which is amazing. It's one of my favorite things in the whole wide world. I teach first grade. I teach ceramics to first graders. Oh. I guarantee no matter what you did the night before, no matter how bad Muni screws up your commute, no matter what happens in your life, the minute you teach first graders clay, like it just all <laughs> washes away. Like it's the best thing. I highly recommend everybody teach.
1: It's like the first time someone's encouraged them to go play in the mud.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's the sweet, like the Venn diagram is is perfection because they're at the sweet spot of motor skill development And conceptual, like, their ideas are still so imaginative, so, like, it's so amazing. So I do that, and then I do another sort of uh, this grant-funded program that I work with through a center I used to teach at called the San Francisco Children's Art Center. It's more like a consulting thing, like, we teach teachers in underserved schools how to incorporate studio practice and creative thinking into their curriculum. So, at any given point, I've got at least four jobs. So, like, right now you caught me in the middle. Fortunately, we had Monday off. But right now you've caught me in the middle of uh, my th- second 13-hour day this week.
1: Oh, my God. Wow.
2: So, like...
0: Living that life.
2: <laughs> people are like, oh, what is it like to be an artist? And I'm like, oh, it's a lot of glamour and travel. And, well, 13-hour days. like I get up and I teach and then I, I haul my... Cookies to the studio for four hours, and then I haul my cookies to some evening class and teach people how to paint, and then get up and do it all again. So I try to like structure my life so that I have at least four solid studio days a week, three to four, mm-hmm. because I can't not work. It's just not it's like I like these people who like work for the weekend, and, like don't do anything on the weekend. Like I don't even know what that's like. Nope. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: Even if I had the luxury. <laughs> Like, I would not do that.
1: It's just not in your nature. Yeah.
2: I just can't sit still. Like, you know, it's one of those things where people are like, well, you know, what inspires you to get to the the studio to make the work? And I'm just like, I just can't not make it at this point. Mm -hmm. If I don't make work i get grumpy and i'm really horrible to be around it really mm-hmm. is yeah. my happy place and so i hustle to protect that and so yeah. i do a lot of adjunct i do this one you know like i said that one teaching artist residency and this other con- consultant type gig and it's just it's feast or famine so sometimes i'll have like more studio days during the week and sometimes i'll have less but it's all designed to to, to keep myself in the studio at least four solid days mm-hmm. and, and what i mean by four solid days is like I'm at least working for 4 hours. Okay.
1: And have you ever viewed your studio practice or your painting as a source of income or sustainability? Like as the teaching, what is really fueling the studio practice for you? Or, uh, cause I know you work with numerous galleries. Are you selling work through that as another means of income or are there other sources that you haven't mentioned yet?
2: Um, No, there's, um, since about 2012, my, my sales have been increasing more steadily that's been a bonus. Last couple years, I've gotten a couple of grants, awards. And that's one of the the reasons I keep applying for those is that I love when people just give you money.
0: Yeah, it's great. It's
2: a beautiful thing.
0: I wish it happened more. I do too.
2: Especially (laughs) because I'm like hell bent on making the art world a meritocracy. So when I get money based on the work I've produced, I'm just like, yes, that's the way it should be. (laughs) Good work should be rewarded. Yes. These are the things I, I delude myself with.
1: <laughs> yeah. Are there any substantial grants that you've applied for or that you've received or sources to find grants that you apply for?
2: I subscribe to the Bay Area Art Grind. It's a list that emails opportunities and jobs. And, and then I, I peruse NIFA occasionally. The San Francisco Arts Commission has a, a pretty good website for links for open calls and grants and stuff. And then I also have a couple of friends that we, we send each other stuff because, as you know, you have to budget your time. And, like, you could literally spend 40 hours looking for opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a couple of friends that we uh, we send each other stuff as it comes across our radar. And so that's one of those things where it's just, like, I rely on my community.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And I'm okay with that because I give back and like when things happen when things come across my radar that are good for somebody I know I send it along.
1: Yeah I can't remember who else mentioned that too but just that such a small action like that can mean so much to another artist and that it's important to keep an eye out for things like that even if you feel like you're not in a place of power or being able to extend opportunities for others we all have that capability and so I appreciate when other artists share that and how they make that a regular part of their work in life and we talked with another artist too in the bay area karen seneferu who said something really beautiful um she does a lot of community driven work and curatorial work and she said that when you start to dream for the community the community will start to dream for you and so just this idea that when you engage with and when you contribute to the community around you you know in some like karmic universal way those things will come back to you and that becomes more symbiotic
2: It's like I tell my students, my success is your success, but your success is my success. Yeah.
1: On the subject of teaching, um, because I know you have also taught professional practices before, are there other things that you would like to share? A lot of our audience are emerging artists or at kind of an earlier stage in their careers, too. So we're always excited when we have artists who are also educators on the podcast, because they tend to be great communicators. And they've already kind of gone through the practice of not only living out their own work in life, but of putting together curriculum or having already sort of thought about these topics. At length. Is there anything that you usually include or address in your lectures around professional practices um, that you think is good to mention?
2: Um, I always encourage students to take a writing class.
0: I will second that as someone who did not and wish they had.
2: <laughs> I was fortunate, so, my dad was a painter and a, and a painting teacher. Uh, My mom was also an educator and she taught language arts for the most part, she taught bilingual education and language arts and so I have a really strong foundation in writing just because of the work that she did early on before I even realized I was working towards being a, a better writer. And so writing for me has always been not just comfortable, but like an enjoyable part of the process. And again, going back to five points, you read artist statements and it's just like, whoa. Um, Sometimes (laughs) you just don't even know what language they're attempting to communicate in like there's, yeah. there's a bunch of English words on the paper but they don't <laughs> really mean anything so writing classes take writing classes or if you don't have like a straight up writing class find a library that has a you know something to, to benefit your your, your your written skills it's just it's just too important because mm-hmm. of not just like for statements you know just not sounding like a, a, a troll in an email You know, (laughs) it is a very, very important thing.
0: Yeah, I second that. For sure. I certainly wish that I, and I still can take a writing class and I probably should and will, but I have found that writing is becoming a roadblock for myself and a lot of things that I want to work on. And I'm like, I can't blog. I can't do proper emails. I can't do that if I don't know how to express myself and communicate in a clear way that people can understand where I'm coming from.
2: Right. And then hand in hand, uh, other things I, I recommend is not just to practice writing, but to have other people read your writing before it goes out into the world, like that, like mm-hmm. some people don't even read, or you know, it's it's easy to overlook that you may only be in your head if you don't get somebody else to read the writing, and so that's super really? important. And so, like I like I mentioned, my group of, of peers that send links to each other, we do that for each other all the time. It, you know, it's like one of those things where we'll send something, no matter what we're doing. We'll all take the time to to, to preview and to, to to make some notes because that's just it's just too important.
0: Is there anything else that we did not talk about that you would want to uh, to share or mention regarding any learning experiences that you've had, a great piece of advice that you've received, or that you would want to give to artists early in their career trying to figure it out?
2: Perseverance. Slow and steady wins the race. <laughs> If you're not running a race. Right. (laughs) If we look at the fable in terms of its metaphor, slow and steady wins the race every time and work on the studio. But if you have to run a race, then you should probably train and stretch and all of that involves these professional practices.
1: Just wondering if there are any other resources, because you've given some really great concrete ones already um, about places that you find calls for entry or sources uh, for workshops and things like that. But are there any others that come to mind that would be good sources for other artists in terms of professional development?
2: I look at forums art for la and i look at the uh, there's this the sf artist network i think did i mention that one
1: oh no but i think yeah i know what you're talking about and we'll include links to all these too that's a good one
2: bay area art grind and then nifa and those are those are it unless somebody sends me something that's on a board those resources uh seem to be the most credible in terms of having opportunities that are not just you're not just sending money to some space and Mm -hmm. you know never to be heard from again
0: and for anyone listening where can they find your
2: work they can find my work on my website my website at this point is mostly an archive and it's it's two things it's archive and then the news section is pretty it's a blog that's updated really Pretty frequently Mm -hmm. but mostly uh, on Instagram you guys can I'm assuming link my Instagram
1: yes yes (laughs) we have that capability
2: that's the best way um, to see visual inspiration works in progress works that are finished before they get archived and or exhibited freshest news comes out of there Mm -hmm. right now I'm I'm, that's kind of where that's the best spot to reach me I just had a it just I was just in a group show that came down, so there's no physical exhibition at this point. I'm working on a couple of projects that will happen later on this year, a couple of uh, collage installations. I can't really talk too much about it, but if you follow mm-hmm. my Instagram, I'll be doing press as those come along. And is that just awesome. at
1: Eric Parra and EricPara.com?
2: Yes, with a K, yes.
1: Great. Perfect.
2: I realize that'll be published, but you grew up up with your name spelled E-R-I-K, and it's like everybody spells it E-R-I-C. Like, it's it's really, it used to be infuriating, but now I just laugh because my name is spelled correctly twice in my email, and it has been Mm -hmm. for a million years, but yet I'm constantly getting emails addressed to some guy named (laughs) E-R-I-C.
1: Who is he? Who is that guy?
2: Actually, I graduated (laughs) with him. I don't know what he's doing now.
1: <laughs> oh, there's another Eric Para. Yeah, w- with the C.
2: Yeah. We went to the same <laughs> high school together.
0: What if those emails are actually meant for him and they're all getting Ooh. sent to <laughs> you? <laughs>
1: <laughs> he's probably getting all kinds of emails that are spelled Eric with a K and it's just some huge misunderstanding.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, maybe he's a much better artist than I am.
1: <laughs> Who even knows? Who even knows? <laughs> well, don't go to Eric Para with a c dot Eric with a K. Yes,
0: always with a K.
1: <laughs> well, Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. We so appreciate you taking the time just to talk and share your experience uh, living out here in the Bay Area, making it work as an artist, as a teacher, and how you found uh, opportunities and just grown your career as a really active member of your community.
2: Thank you. It was uh, it was fun, and uh, and I hope it was helpful.
0: Awesome, thank you so much. It was a great conversation, and sorry for all of the distractions.
2: <laughs> Again, I'm baffled that we didn't get a, a single siren.
1: <laughs> I had we had on plenty my of end. Uh, meowing cats and barking and peeing dogs, but
2: but no sirens. We'll on we'll
1: cut it all out mostly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, your audio is clean and clear, and she had the dogs i had the cat and this i had my siren and it'll be great it is what it is (laughs) thank you guys so much. well
1: eric yeah i hope to run into you at an opening in the bay sometime soon and i'll keep an eye out for um upcoming shows and stuff that you're in
2: yeah and i follow you now on instagram so cool we will run into we're
1: connected in a in a digital space (laughs)
2: yes nice meeting you thank you so much you guys
1: that's it for this episode of the beyond the studio podcast you can find show notes references and a brief summary of the episode over at our website beyond the studio while you're there be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests special announcements and podcast giveaways and just to make sure, it seems pretty straightforward, but just we'd like to double check. Um, is your name pronounced Eric Para?
2: Eric Para. Well, that's the acceptable pronunciation. The actual pronunciation is Para, but Para. There you go. Okay. That's good. Sorry, I took a position. <laughs> I took a position as uh,
0: Nicole. Are those the dogs? Dogs. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <Okay. laughs>
0: No, no, this is the blooper for the end, already done.
2: <laughs> so. <laughs> no, I know, just no, done. Now no, that's the blooper.
0: <laughs> Remy's He's like, heard, like, I totally <laughs> agree. I'm done with the general public.
2: <laughs> There's the cat.
0: Yep. Oh <laughs> I was like, oh, she'll God. show up at some, at some point. point.